Hey, this is Sully from the band Theft to the Gallows, and this is my What the Punk podcast.
and uh, could you do a, like a caramel drizzle inside of the cup and instead of whipped cream, can you just go ahead and give me a couple of extra vanilla pumps? Then I get it done. Okay, so here's why you're weird. All right, you ready to know why you're weird? I'm ready. Okay, this is why Nay is weird. You're kind of an introvert. For sure. You have a little bit of anxiety. You seem, if I met you somewhere, I would think that you're really reserved, prim and proper. (laughs) (laughs) So, So that's what you project. And that is the furthest thing, I think, from who you are. And I just had this conversation with you about when Blizz and I buy beer, we're like, oh, my God. Look at all these options. There's but this option on oh, this this like tangerine stout blah blah, and we're like, let's just get the Guinness. <laughs> then when I get to you, and you're like, hey, I got this really unique IPA that came in from the lower reaches of the Netherlands that was flown in <laughs> by a Tibetan monk after it was warmed by the sun at noontime and then chilled by some penguins over, and then like it is. It is so bizarre for me, you as a person, you seem like a a work of contradictions. Hmm. Can you see that? Does that... Yeah. uh, I I think you nailed a lot of aspects of um, my personality and obviously like some things that I'm, I'm sort of constantly trying to... I guess, consider, think about, improve upon. Uh, But yeah, I've definitely been an introvert my whole life. And there's been concrete moments uh, in my life or situations that I've intentionally put myself into that take me out of that comfort zone. Um, And, you know, I think the beer analogy is really funny because... (laughs) No, because you because I would think you'd be the person that's like, no, I drink white wine. <laughs> and it's like gallo. Right? That right. would seem like that's my thing and this is this is my lane. Right. Yeah. I and I don't feel like you have it's weird as you have a lane, but I, I feel like you have like 14 lane. <laughs> you have a 14 lane highway. Yeah. I and, mean, I I I self-describe as a risk averse person. Uh, I don't like roller coasters. I don't like new rides at the amusement park. Um, but at the same time, I guess, as as something that's a little bit idi- idiosyncratic is that I've sort of up and moved to different cities uh, multiple times in my life uh, and said, you know what, I'm going to try something. I'm going to go uh, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to leave Kansas City. I'm going to go to San Antonio. Um, I'm going to go take an internship uh, working in the arts in Austin and try to figure it out after college. Um, I'm going to go to grad school in St. Louis. Cool. Uh, And so these sort of city jumps have been, generally speaking, you know, like professionally related and uh, educationally related. But at the same time, like, you know, there's definitely been been points where where those moves um, have happened. Uh, and and I think a lot of people who maybe <laughs> like to go on roller coasters or you know skydiving or you know some of those other more like physical physical body risks might be the sort of folks 
who are like, no, I, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to stay here because it's comfortable. So I've pushed myself. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So do you think that there's a, like a, there's like two separate kinds of people? I mean, there's probably more than that. Yeah. But where you, it's, I've never heard that framed that way before, though, where you're physically risk adverse, but not m- mentally. Or, or do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or, or even emotionally. Right. But there could be something that seems like, oh, they're, they totally love adventure. Right. But they've been living in their hometown for 30 years. Right. Right. I mean, I, I guess to, to bring it back to my childhood, I was the person who uh, refused to go upside down underwater during swim class. And so I had to repeat the same level of, sw- of swim class every single summer. And all the kids kept getting younger and I kept getting older <laughs> because I would not go upside down because I did not like the feeling of you know being displaced so much and how disorienting that, that feeling, that sensation was. Did you ever do it? Or did you just stop going to swim? <laughs> <laughs> My parents told me I didn't have to do it anymore after a certain point. But there was a moment that was, I would say, like on my list of traumatic events when the, st- the swim instructor actually helped me, you know, do it. So I did it by them guiding me through it. Or also known as forced drowning you. Is that kind of... <laughs> <laughs> No, it's just, you know, the bubbles go up your nose and then you feel all weird, like there's some weird twinge in your head afterwards and also like the world goes upside down on you. I, I, I hate that stuff. I still do. <laughs> do, you, do you think, though, that there was some fear in you about like getting hurt or like what was your the, the impetus for you being risk adverse? So, I mean, is it just it's feeling based? Is it? the way your body feels when it feels out of control. Yes. Actually, that's, I think you're saying it really well. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't like that feeling of being out of control physically, but, you know, I don't particularly like the feeling of being out of control mentally either. (laughs) So I I guess. Yeah, um, but then, hold on, rewind. Yeah. So, (laughs) but that doesn't. That seems like a contradiction, though, because when you're on stage performing, there's only so much you can control. So you're actually putting yourself directly in a risky environment that the wheels could come off emotionally and mentally. So what's up with that? (laughs) Yeah. No, there's an interesting conversation I had with my dad and my brother um, over the holidays where uh, my brother said something to the effect of, well, you know, as Nay, you love performing. You love being on stage and, um, you know, doing the dance moves and everything. And that's great, right? And I was like, well, it's very fun. It's exhilarating. But it has taken me a long time and quite a bit of practice to sort of figure out what performance is or looks like and to kind of remove myself as Janae from the process enough to fully embrace the absurdity of whatever song I'm singing or the dance moves that I'm going through in order to kind of access that. But to my dad and my brother, I was like, well, it's really anxiety inducing for me. But once I'm like 30 seconds into it, it's like, okay, let's go. I'm not the sort of person who like thrives off of that. And um, I guess 
you want me to talk a little bit more about performance. And well, but, but if you don't thrive on it, why do you do it then? Why don't you just record music? Mm-hmm. Like, why is there a need to put a show on? Why is there a need to put on a Saturday performance mm-hmm. where you're broadcasting a show that you're scripting and trying to put together with other artists also? Why is there a need to be on stage if, there, if it isn't? Like, what's the payoff? Like, what are you getting out of it? Right. I, I think, to me, the physical performance or the virtual performance, if we're talking about live streaming, it makes the music more three-dimensional. I think if you're just listening to the track, you get this idea in your mind of, of the character or the voice that's singing the song and can get the idea of the music. And I think with recorded music, one of the, the first things your brain goes to is actually... Um, or at least for me, it's not the lyrics. It's, oh, what's the style of this? Oh, does this fit into my musical taste? I think musical taste is really important. But the moment that that music becomes an experience, not only for the performer, but also for the audience or the fans or the people who are listening to it, it it becomes, uh, it can become immersive. It can be something else. And even if you don't particularly love the music or it's not like the music that defines you, you can still show up and have an awesome time. And that's, I think, why so many people go to shows with their friends, even if they've never heard of the artist, you know? Like, so many people will be like, oh, you're going to see Shellac. I mean, they're like a metal band. I I like their music, but I'm not, like, a hardcore Shellac fan. But if I had a a friend who was going to a show, I'd be like, oh, that's going to be fun. Because, because there's that, that experience to it, the yes. live experience of it. Yes. That you're not necessarily getting on the recorded experience. Right. And I think that, so that speaks to kind of, you know, making that experience broader for the fans. But my, you know, personal goal and my, uh, my goal through, through the songwriting and the lyrics is to present, present pop music in a different way, present uh, ideas through pop music, meanings or things to consider, uh, things to ask questions about in the world. So you're looking at, as an artist, see, I think this is hard for me because my main thing is just being a lyricist, right? Mm-hmm. So I look at like, well, the song's written. Okay. Then there's the recorded version. And I can live with that. I'm Okay. I don't have a need to perform live. I don't think I don't think of it. I think that is actually is like a separate mm-hmm. entity as by itself. I don't think of it as part of the whole. But what I'm hearing from you is for you the recorded is one aspect. The the pro, the art project for me is the album. The art project for you is you, the nay character, and in order for that project Nay, you need the different paints or mediums of the sound, the visual, the photography. I mean, you do your own photography, the photography. Mm-hmm. So all these things create nay, which makes it immersive. So it's, am I understanding, am I explaining this correctly, that you, you yourself are the project uh, <laughs> I, and I don't mean, yeah. ju- I, but right. Do you yeah, get what I'm no, saying? I, I totally you're, do. You're painting yourself with the recorded music and then you're painting yourself through the fashion that you wear as nay, how the picture, you control the pictures that you release of her. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You do your own photography, mm-hmm. your own mm-hmm. makeup. You do your own clothing, fashion. You do your own lyric writing. You do, I mean, so, and you do your, you choreograph your own live shows. So all of that are different paints and colors of painting yourself. Yes. And I'd like to add, um, I, I think it's as much about the environments and the, the full scene as it is about the character, um, nay, performing within them. And oftentimes in my music videos, uh, where they take place, the, the performance art pieces that I've done, um, I guess I should mention my background is in uh, visual art, but in uh, graduate school, I really took a deep dive into performance art and what that looks like and how one can use one's body to perform in various spaces and how that changes the the character of the space or the performativity of the space itself. And so um, with many of my music videos, I've had, I've, I've created them inside of new urbanist uh, sort of cookie cutter colonial subdivisions. I've filmed music videos in a ruinous church. Um, and then most recently a music video in a barn slash 1980s style office. And, um, I think that the environment plays so much of a factor into the song when it's, it's presented in a visual form. And I think that points back again to the sort of three-dimensionality of adding the visual performance to the music. So it wouldn't be nay without those things. Exactly. Do you think all artists think that? Do you, I mean, because I'm different. I mean, in pop music, do you think that that's specifically towards pop music? Or do you think that that's, I mean, is that going on with like Dua Lipa? Is that going on with Kesha? Is that is that a female pop thing of... Because you and I both, you you turned me actually. I was a hater on Kesha, and you totally were like, <laughs> no, 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 you got to listen to Kesha. So I I did a deep dive, and I was just like, oh, like you have to like her, right? I mean, oh, yeah. I mean I, there's something wrong with you if you don't. I think anybody in because mm-hmm. she does her own writing, recording, mm-hmm. right? So th- does does that because she's kind of an immersive, mm-hmm. right? Is that kind of, do you think a lot of artists are doing that? Or do you think that's just more of a female thing right now? That women are trying to do everything to control their own image because they've been controlled so much? Is that, do you think that's part of the impetus for what you're doing? Or is that, you would have been, this is how you approach art in general. I don't, I don't want to make something up here, right? Like yeah, about no. female empowerment. I don't want to make something up, but I right. don't know if I'm along the right lines here. No, I, I, there's so many layers to your question. It's great um, because okay. with with any kind of uh, pop music, you know, pop stands for popular, right? And so it's music that's popularly accessible. And oftentimes, you know, the idea with pop music is to create a brand or an image around that artist. So I think... When you're talking about artists like uh, Kesha or Katy Perry or Dua Lipa, um, Lady Gaga, these women are uh, Lizzo. You know, these women are empowered to you know be who they are. But at the same time, you know, going back to Kesha, she had this terrible, awful uh, falling out with her original producer. Ended up really going through you know rehabilitation and pulling herself back together. 
Um, and so there's sort of always been this tension between, you know, the, the brand of the artist and the commercial factor of the music and the identity that's projected as opposed to who the artist really is, especially when you're looking at those like top tier major label artists and um, looking optimistically, you know, there's a lot more female producers and a lot more females working at higher levels in, you know, the record label and in the music industry world. So hopefully that's changing. The unique thing I think about being um, a pop artist right now and in a space in a place where you know if you aren't signed to a major label you you can still of course get your music out on all of the streaming platforms and you can craft that image um, for yourself and kind of figure out navigate a path of you know what that looks like and so for for Nay there's sort of two ways that I describe who Nay is and what that project looks like. And there is the side that's more, you know, it fits enough to that sort of pop icon brand, that sort of commercial slickness. Like, what do people think is cool? You know, that that is pop. It, it sort of, it pulls from all of the things that are underground and then pulls them up to be, mainstream and then you know if you're if you're in a position to do so you put in a lot of money and it's it's awesome <laughs> um so there's that kind of commercial side I think for anyone trying to make pop music or anyone making music in general because you didn't you do need an artist identity a brand and there's um of course a, a whole DIY movement as far as how to market your own music etc for me the project absolutely overlaps with that but it exists in more of a conceptual context to me as well, uh, because I think uh, my approach with Nay is to really, you know, say something about the world that we live in and to make people sort of reconsider uh, their own attitudes and their own, you know, place of power in the world. And I can talk more about that uh, as we as we go. But um, yeah, I think the environment plays just as much of a role in it as, you know, who you are as a pop artist, but also keeping in mind that those top tier pop artists that you hear on the radio, they have entire teams of people who are, you know, ideating these beautiful visuals and putting together super shiny, slick bubblegum pop music videos. They are, but it, it still feels authentic to who they are. Right. I think so. I mean, again, so they're doing their job well then, right? If they're selling me yeah. on it, I mean, but I feel like Kesha is Kesha. Like, like you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm not saying like she's like that all the time behind closed doors, but I think that's a, that's a, that's a facet of her personality coming yes. out. Or and augmented. Augmented. And a lot of people are like, oh, she's so crash, she's swearing. But one thing I like about her is that if you actually listen to her, her words and the, mu- the music's very smart, it's extremely catchy. And... A song like "Motherfucking Woman," like when you play that song, <laughs> it's so you, good. It's so good, and you're like, "Oh, it's something like, oh, well, she doesn't need to say fucking." And you're like, "Yeah, but that's the point of like, there's there's bombacity and grandioseness to that. There is also like anger. There's and if you listen to the music, the music is just like it's like a rock, like bah, like it's ballsy, right? Mm-hmm. So." There's something about that that um, 
I just, you know, when I hear that, I'm like, this feels like, I don't feel like she's playing a character. I feel like, I think that's like a character trait of her yes. somewhere. And that she's like, like you said, throwing steroids on that. It's just pumping it up with mm-hmm. tons of sugar, sugar pumps. Yeah. Right? She's, she's pumping, to quote one of your songs, that she's pumping that up. Mm-hmm. And for me, I don't want to be, I don't want to be jerked around by the machine. Right. Which is why I said I've always leaned towards band. And I've said this in other interviews. I lean towards DIY artists and punk bands because they were doing it for the sake of doing it and it felt authentic. Even bands that, that I really liked, let's say like The Clash. I was actually just listening to The Clash earlier. And yes, there was a machine behind pushing The Clash, the exposure back in the 80s. But it was still... They're writing political songs. They are there. There are things there that Joe Strummer is like. This is what I write about. I don't care. Mm-hmm. This is this is who I am, and this right. is what I'm, this is the album I'm giving you. Yep. And I think there's some. So I guess that's what I'm saying is like, cool. do I fe- do you feel like that there is this movement of women that are doing that, or or do you feel like it's bullshit? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Is is Kesha bullshit? Is Katy Perry bullshit? I feel like Katy Perry's controlling her Katy Perry's vision. I think this, and she's hiring people to help her do it, but she's doing it, and and I feel like that's what you're doing. Like I, except you can't. You're not there to hire people yet. You, but there's also a control aspect from you because you're risk adverse. So. Let's say you could see. I'm jumping ship now. Ten, we're going to ten, yep. tangent here. <laughs> so let's say all of a sudden you have a giant fan base, and you know you can sell sell at an arena. Are you going to hire people to help you out with yours? Like, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I would love to be in the position of you know art director, but one one thing that is made nay. And every music video that I've done since the very beginning, so awesome, is that even though I've had, you know, a huge say in the vision, you can't perform and direct at the same time. And so it's been really wonderful to be able to collaborate with other artists who have a creative vision and be able to bring those different things together and have, you know, great phone conversations, in-person conversations about what that video could be. And... Um, so I feel like I'm already doing that at a small scale. I, I'm not actually controlling every single tiny detail or every single tiny facet. And I, I want to get better about having that like overarching vision and what I want to see happen. But I think for anyone who wants to do something that's a level up as far as production, a level up as far as visual impact... You can't be the person in front of the camera and behind the camera and directing at the same time. Um, if you if you want if you want to get to that next level, and um, I know that I'm very fortunate to know folks who are you know as just as invested in Nay as I am and are willing to hop on board and uh, share in the project. Um, so, so you're a project manager. The the project is nay, and your goal is to be a project manager of the director for the videos, of the publicist, of but you're the one that's overseeing 
Yeah, I guess... Everything. I guess you could put it that way. I I think I have a a lot of ideas and, you know, impetus as far as, like, what I'd like the visuals to be. But then, you know, with any kinds of art, whether they're spoken or you're both looking at the same painting, two people could be looking at the same thing, and one person says, oh, I think that's a duck. The other person says, well, I think that's a moon. And it's like, oh, I see. Oh, that's cool. I could see that. You know, I think I think that um, you know larger projects can be dealt with in that sense too. And if you're you know working with the right people, uh, you can let those ideas bounce off of each other, and then ultimately the project is greater than um, what it was. Or what is it? The 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 sum is. Some of the uh, some is, of the parts is greater than the, to the whole. Uh, yes, greater than the whole, but also other than the whole. It's like something different, and it's wonderful because it's all you know. It's all in on on making something, whatever it can possibly be. So, what if you had a doppelganger that you could send out in your place to go perform, and you could direct her to be Nay? Wouldn't that be part? Of, so, does Nay have to be Nay? Couldn't we do a virtual nay and just so now how we're doing virtual shows of like Roy Orbison or Elvis Presley, Nina Simone, like people are coming out and you know they're we're having augmented reality concerts. Mm-hmm. Couldn't you just do that? Couldn't you have like a virtual nay performing yeah. in like twelve cities at exactly the same time? And why hasn't that been done? By the way, why isn't like the Rolling Stones or or Lady Gaga done a Vegas show? And they just like film it and then they just perform like she's performing virtually right. like everywhere at the exact same time. Yeah. So it's like 15 <laughs> concerts at once, Lady Gaga with Nay, right? Like yeah. would that be, could that be part of your gig? I mean, would you do that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the virtual space is fascinating and I guess um, there, so many ideas happening right now with just you saying that, but uh there's an artist named Marshmallow who actually gave a live show in uh, as a virtual avatar of himself in the game Fortnite. No, I didn't yes. know that. Yes. And tons of people came, uh, you know, mostly like younger kids, but some adults too. And uh, it was it was like an awesome, huge virtual show that happened in the live space of the game, but him performing as, you know, his avatar, his character inside of that game space. Did, did anybody kill him? <laughs> it's Fortnite. Right. Did anybody shoot him? I didn't see it, so I, I think we might have to look that up on YouTube afterwards. But... That's brilliant. Example number two, um, there's an artist who I follow on Instagram. Uh, her name's Lil McQuella, and she Lil, is... Lil... Lil... Lil McQuella. Lil McQuella. Yes. And she is actually an AI. She is a pop star, pop singer... And, uh, you know, Instagram persona identity, makes music videos, talks to people, hangs out at real live 17-year-old female friends' houses. But she is actually a robot computer and manufactured by the, the company that, that created her. And so her, you know, her whole thing, even as a robot, even as an AI, even as a computer is still that, you know, she is so in touch with what's relevant. She is empathetic. She is thinking and feeling based on how she's programmed. And so if she makes a post on Instagram or one of her stories, 
you know, thousands of people will leave her comments empathizing with her or sending heart emojis or saying, oh, that's so great. But, you know, she'll post a picture and she'll be like, oh, my cousin Roomba, he's not feeling well today. And she's literally sitting next to a Roomba because he's a robot too. <laughs> so I think it's wonderful. And um, I guess the fact that for, for me, um, as Nay, Nay is a persona who I've created, who I play. And in the world of Nay, this world is a satirical world, but not in a, a, a cynical way, not in a negative sense of, of being this sort of satire, this play, you know, if you want to think about it in theater terms. But it's, it's a satire in the sense that it's a little bit absurd. And Nay performs caricatures of other white women who have their own names and their own stories and their own problems that they have because they're coming at life from a place of privilege. And uh, so the, the music on a, a larger level, you know, is a commentary on systemic entitlement and what that looks like in particular for, you know, white women and kind of what we do moving forward. And so many of, of the caricatures that Nay performs in these satires or in this larger universe, uh, which you can access in many regards by listening to the album, by watching the music videos and seeing the performances. Um, each of these, these caricatures has different problems that are, you know, the problems of boredom, uh, having latent addictions to caffeine, sugar, possibly drugs, um, and are, are sort of victims of overconsumption. They, you know, they're very concerned with, you know, an online identity, online presence, uh, and our online shoppers, all of that. And these, Do you, can I interrupt you? Yeah. Do you write a song with this idea of, would you call it white women? Would you call and, it? And the, the problems of, of uh, you know, being privileged. Essentially. But specifically for white women, though, you're you're going with that. I I can't pretend to be anything else. Okay, good. That's no, fine. Do you? So I just want to make sure that I'm asking, that I'm interpreting this correctly. And then when I ask the question, do you ever write the character and be like, "Ugh, I'm kind of like that sometimes." Do you, Do you see yourself as you're as you're blowing something up and making the caricature? Do you? Because I think it's one thing too. Like when I write a song, and I always say, like, like Theft of the Gallows, a lot of times, I'd say, like, 50% of my songs are <laughs> F.U. songs. Yeah. Right? And I was like, well, it's just a different way to say F.U. to somebody different, right? Mm -hmm. But So mm -hmm. instead of writing, like, love songs, right, with someone just like, I was, I was joked, like, Chris Isaac, who wrote Wicked Game, it's been around forever, he's the only rich, handsome guy that's been dumped by, like, 80 women. And you're kind of like, I don't think that happens to Chris, right? Mm -hmm. Um I look at like, but his whole career is like breakup songs where he gets dumped. And you're like, no, I don't know about that, Chris. And then with me, it's kind of like, wow, a lot of people are pissing Sully off. And I just take different angles of being pissed off at somebody. So I write about it. It's almost like, do you find the different characters of white women? And they're like, oh, sh so I'll do them. You're like, oh, I was kind of the dick, right? Like in a weird way, like making the character where then I re read it back or I'm singing, I'm like, I think I'm singing about me. 
wait a minute, I just F-you'd me. Like, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, have you done that where you've written the character like, son of a bitch, that's, I'm the white woman in this one. Yeah. I, I think that they're, I, I think that I relate a lot. Um, to white women? Yeah, <laughs> I, I do. It's good because you're white and you're a woman, I, so that works out. Yes, and I, I'm, I, yes. And I think right now, Many white women are having, you know, you can watch SNL skits about this, but there's just a lot of talk about, you know, reexamining your position as uh, in the world and what you can do and what you can say. And, you know, there, as much as we've sort of academically and anthropologically studied, you know, like, what is it to be like an Asian American person? What is it to be a Latinx person? Um, uh, an argument that Richard Dyer makes in his book, White. Who's Richard Dyer? He is a, an author, PhD, um, uh, sort of coming from an anthropological background. He has a book from, uh, I think, 1998 called White, and it examines images of, of whiteness in, in movies, in media, and uh, what's interesting about his observation is that because white culture is so dominant over anything else that it is like the normal and everything else is divergent from it and so as a thing of course that imbues whiteness with privilege because that's just the way it is and that's what we've been oh okay no hold on i I just had a a revelation yeah go for it can i can i Spitball with you here for a second? Yeah. I've not taken white privilege because I don't feel privileged. They shouldn't call it privilege because I don't have any I've had to work my whole life. But when you frame it like the white norm. Exactly. That's what it means. Like, no, I'm serious. I, I just, I, like an anvil just dropped on my head. Sure, I get it. Because every show up to like 10 years ago was white people. <laughs> like every, right? Every mainstream show until there was like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or, yeah. or like Divin Strokes in the 80s. But those shows were anomalies, mm-hmm. right? But they were still two black boys in different strokes being taken care of a white man. Mm-hmm. right? Again, white people helping black people, mm-hmm. right? If you keep looking at like these the undertones of what's going on, that makes sense to me. There's a white norm. Yeah. That's, I, I don't think it should be called white privilege. I think that anything outside of the white norm well, is, is you're, you're, there's something wrong with you or you know, you're, you're an outsider. Which is a result of that kind of thinking, which, which it's not thinking because it's so systemic. It's something that we're all just we've become accustomed to or used to. And that's, I think, part of the reason why, you know, like you yourself saying, you know, I don't have privilege, I, I've not been privileged, I think is because of, you know, this other large, you know, ideological term, systemic entitlement, meaning no one actually checks themselves until something happens that causes them to either go through trauma or witness something traumatic, you know, and then reassess themselves and become more self-aware in that process. And I think, you know, the the Black Lives Matter movement 
the the killing of George Floyd, and even when I I, I lived in St. Louis when uh, Michael Brown was murdered in Ferguson and was literally 10 minutes away from this incident and was reading the news and everything. And I, I spent three nights by myself crying in bed, just thinking about how awful it was and, you know, starting to think really critically about, okay, like what's my place in all of this? Um, and so there, there's systemic racism, which is sort of the other flip of the coin. It's like, if you're not other or if you're sorry, if you're not if you're not the norm, you are other, and that creates racism. Oh, hold on, hold on. So in the book, what is it called? Whiteness or white? White. White. Does he talk about if there's a white norm? Do minorities feel more minority because of the norm? Is is that how I'm hearing you say that when you say like if there's this is the norm. There's the other. The other makes you feel less than just because you, you recognize the norm. Like every minority sees that this is the norm. Well, I, I can't really speak to how minorities feel because I've never... Well, I'm talking about the book. I'm saying, does, does he address that in the book? I would say that the book is more an examination of whiteness and what that means so he's not and how that's presented okay, so and, and why it's important to take a look at this and why it's the norm. I wouldn't say that the argument looks at, you know, the other side of the coin so directly like that. So there needs to be a, a book called Other from the minority standpoint. I guess well, I guess that's Black well, there, Lives Matter. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So uh, the, I, I, I absolutely that's think That's the that. BLM movement. But I guess going, taking it back to, I guess, part of the commentary you had asked, um, you know, do I, do I write from the voices? Like, do I empathize? Am I these people or do I relate to them? Who are these people? Am I thinking about that as I'm writing the song? I would say sometimes yes. And sometimes I have to look at it afterwards and kind of reassess. And sometimes the women whose voices I'm writing in are women who I've met over the course of my life. And, you know, I found them interesting or unique, or there was something, uh, that sparked the curiosity to write the song from that vantage point. It's not just a restaurant, it's an event. It's an experience. Today, chefs prepared a reinterpretation of traditional tapas. You'll start with a parsnip truffle brioche resting on iced celery foam, garnished with local flora. Next, we have filet tartare over Parmesan raviolo, finished with a malt vinegar gelée. This is our lemongrass-infused mushroom tempura with dry-aged tenderloin flakes massaged in a pistachio glaze. Do you all like caviar?
lamb. Start off with this manchego, paired with some crudite, a sherry bacon caramel hamachi duck pate. And it only gets better. Try the organic farm microgreens topped in cremini's beluga lentils and blistered mango. It's a little amuse-bouche. I guess I can give you two examples on this. Uh, one, I have a song called Trattoria Euphoria, not on the album, but we've performed it, we've performed it live a few times. Um, and the song is, is sung from the perspective of a uh, white, young, uh, like 28-year-old um, service industry worker who's a server at a high-end fine dining restaurant. Can, can you stop a second? So when you're writing, do you create a character specific? Like you're being very specific right now. Yeah. So when you're writing, do you see? So it sounds like you're writing like a novelist, like you're writing a story. So you, do you put this kind of character development into the voice of the person that you're, the character that you're singing from, or the perspective that you're singing from? With some songs, that story is at the forefront, and that character is at the forefront. And then with other songs. I have to take a step back because of how it evolves and how it develops and how the music sounds and then write that character after the fact, but knowing a general idea of where I'm going. But you're putting all these factors into the character. You're, you're actually creating a character. Yes. On all your songs. Correct. No? Okay. Whether, so I, that, whether that, character, that character may sing two or three songs, that character may only sing one song. And that character may develop in the in the process of writing the lyrics, the music, or after listening to it 30 times afterwards, 
who is singing this song and why did she, you know, why did she come out of, of the writing of this song? So just to make clear, Janae is creating the character of Nay, and through the character of Nay, Nay is performing other characters. Caricatures. Caricatures. Because they're they're um they're exaggerated. So Nay is the mouthpiece of Janae who's performing the caricatures that Janae has written. Yes. You might have a personality disorder. I'm just saying. <laughs> but, but keep going. Keep going. So Trattoria for um say it again. Trattoria Euphoria. Trattoria Euphoria. Yes. And the reason you are so well versed in this song is because I worked as a restaurant server for eight years for in eight fine dining. Years. Great. And that's a whole well let's get into that in a minute. Yeah. Because I think everybody should work in a restaurant. It is the greatest performance you can ever do in your life. And that <laughs> that is a quote. That is a quote, not from me, but from Bob Madden, who is a server who I worked with, a very, very amazing human being and and drummer and a great guy. But uh, you know, even in the service industry, we talk about it as putting on the show. But if you can work in the service industry, I feel like it's almost like New York. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> like right. It's so much to put yeah. up with. But go ahead. So, okay. Trattoria Euphoria. Go for it. Is, is sung from the perspective of uh, a white woman. Her name's Kelsey. And she works in this high-end fine dining restaurant. And so she is constantly condescended by her guests. And she also works there while she's, you know, teaching political science as an adjunct faculty at a major university. But, you know, she makes more money serving at this very up-and-coming, chic, you know, small plates of bourbon sweet potato, you know, with dust of honeydew and all of this stuff that goes into these crazy, uh, amazing, immaculate dishes. Um, but are these real dishes in the song? Yeah. A dust of honeydew. Yes. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Langostinos a la plancha, spiced and wreathed in smoke, a coriander caviar with a single hen egg yolk. You might be thinking marrow with confit whiskey jus, a little sopresata with dust of honeydew. Oh my God, I can't even say it. Go keep going. <laughs> So she, the song is spoken from her perspective as she's spieling the guests on the features all night. And the, of course, the spiel takes three and a half minutes because there's so many, you know, uh, luxury items on the, men, on the menu because, uh, in essence, she works for this yeah, aspirational lifestyle restaurant. It's, it's here today and people are spending a lot of money because there's a lot of cultural capital and cachet and taking pictures of their food and with their food. And in this, you know, it's a very Instagrammable place. But she works there, and she is earnestly spieling her guests um, because, dang it, she's got to make some tips, and she's entitled to those tips because she has three degrees and a master's degree. And I relate because I've been there. That she has to pay off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's in debt. Right. The, like, it's, it's so, it's the most interesting, strange sort of place to be, and I think a lot of, a lot of service staff are in this position of, you know, yes, I have a master's degree. Yes, my major is in art. Yes, I'm your barista. Yes, I'm your server. Um, and yes, there might be opportunities for, for me in the future. But, you know, something that I've struggled with is this sort of sense of feeling like you're entitled to have more 
at a given point because you worked hard, you, you know, like that American Puritan model, I worked hard for this, like, I should be making more money, I should be, you know, getting more out of this, I should be, you know, promoted to a higher position, whatever. And really like, eating that entitlement and saying, you know what, tonight, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to sell some food, make some people's mouths water and walk home with $450. And that's my goal tonight. I'm going to do it. And that's how Kelsey feels. Um, now she's exhausted, right? She's, she has to, you know, deal with people. She gets condescended. It's, you know, a lot of people who come in and are your typical, let's have mimosas, bottomless mimosas and brunch and Instagram our food. She, I, she deals I, I, with I, a lot. I, I do like bottomless mimosas. Yeah, quite good. <laughs> so good. Or Bloody Marys. Yes. Do you like Bloody Marys? Yes. What's your favorite, favorite morning booze? Morning booze. Okay. It is very close tie between Bloody Mary, spicy, and a Boddington's. Oh, English ale. Yeah. It's just a breakfast beer. <laughs> what, really what if is. you had a Boddington's as the chaser for the... <laughs> for the, for the so hold on. How spicy is your Bloody Mary? Let's be honest. How spicy do you like it? Depends on how spicy my mood is. <laughs> Are you putting horseradish in it? Yes. Pepper? A lot of pepper. Jalapeno? You would put a jalapeno in that? Um, I wouldn't put a fresh jalapeno. Tabasco? No, I don't like Tabasco. But I, I'm, I'm kind of like hot sauces like I am with my beers. I'm like, ooh, this is different. Let's try this. So you go with a hot sauce? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Grinders oh. is really good. Kansas City hot sauce, really. Oh, you good. give me a shout out to, yeah. to Grinders. Yay. Okay, okay. So you would go with a Bloody Mary, super spicy, mm-hmm. or a Bonningtons. What would Kelsey go with? She would probably sleep through brunch most days because she works so late making her four hundred dollars. Right. <laughs> Uh, she would be the person who, like, her friends would show up, and she'd be like, guys, I worked so late last night. She'd probably show up, like, get a, a you know, she'd have some some of someone else's bottle of rosé and, like, just slam, like, $10 on the table and not eat anything and, like, go home and pass out. I kind of like Kelsey. Is she yeah. single? Yeah, she doesn't <laughs> have, she, she actually actively avoids talking with uh, men at the restaurant or like she never hangs out where people smoke cigarettes in the back by the dumpster. Okay, so your face just got really serious because I was joking around and you were like, no, actually, Kelsey would not do that because she would not, she's not part of that because no, she knows it's part of the show. She's working the show right. for you so you'll spend money so she can make her money. Yes. Yeah, she's not messing around. She She has been in bad relationships with service other service staff before like when she first started and now she's like I'm not doing that again this is this is all you know I'm I'm here to work I'm here to make some money and put on the show is this code for you <laughs> you get what I'm saying if you want and you don't have to answer I'm not but you get what I'm saying like so this is where you leave cliffhanger this is where you leave people like so is Janae talking about herself or is she talking about through Nay, and Nay is writing about a character. Like, what the hell is happening right now, right? It's the, it's they're 
remember, Kelsey is a caricature, and so she's exaggerated. She's <laughs> augmented. Is she a composite of multiple people, possibly? That you or or people you've known. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I want to tell you something. I'm I'm making sure we're not running out of time on my mm -hmm. SD card. I worked at a so you were can we say your restaurant, fancy restaurant? Yeah. I, I worked at Fleming's Prime Steakhouse and Wine Bar for eight years. So where was your, your first so this is not like you just made this up. You had a first hand experience on the front lines of restaurant life. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of the most punk rock things you can ever do, work in a restaurant. Did you like it? I did. I thought it was great. Give, give me the four upsides of working at Fleming's. Go. Very smart people to work with and joke around with on the job. Smart. Very intelligent people worked with me, both as servers and in the kitchen, just overall, like, I feel like everyone was, you know, creative, intellectual, thoughtful people. That, that's one. Two, go. Uh, I, I, I loved the learning experience. I knew nothing about interacting with strangers before I started working at a restaurant. Did you have anxiety about that? At first, yeah, but then, um, I, so I started as a hostess uh, when I worked, I've worked at three locations. So when I started as a hostess in downtown Austin, Texas, um, I got to, you know, train and learn from people who had been sort of hardened by the restaurant business for, you know, a number of years, including other hostesses who were like, oh yeah, it's fine. You can do this. You got this. Just start talking to them, make small talk. And so I would observe them and kind of see what they would do. And um, I think it was in Austin where I started becoming more and more comfortable with the performance because the servers were performing in front of the guests at the table. The hosts were performing at the most basic level of greeting people walking through the door. Uh, and then sort of conspiring afterwards, like, you know, clear, obviously it's a restaurant, so there's gossip going on and there's always something to talk about. So, um, yeah, uh, performance side. Three. Oh, man. Oh. And don't hold back. Come no, on. No, Come no, on. No, Let no. it out. I, Just say it. I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, the money. See, there's an honest answer. Yeah. What the punk? It's honest. Yeah. The money's really good. I mean, what Kelsey, could you make in a night? Kelsey too. What right? could you make in a night, really? A really good night at Fleming's. What could you pull down? The highest I ever made was $1,500. No way. Yep. Yes. What's the least you made? $8. Are you kidding? For a full shift? For a... 10 hour shift, including going into the, the, the coat closet and crying and feeling like my life was being wasted. Early on or later on in the Fleming's career? Uh, it happened more so in the mid part of the career when I was starting to like learn how to serve and, you know, kind of roll with the punches and not know necessarily what to expect or, you know, what people will tip or how the night will go. Um, but yeah, I, I would say in general, on average, I think, you know, 160 to 200 cash in hand was, was great. 
that's actually a good living. Yeah. You, you can live on that. Yeah. There's a P- lot plus of security pl- in that. Plus your little, what, like $6 an hour on the check too, right? Yeah. Was it less than that? <laughs> was it like four twenty five? Oh, you mean like the well, hourly? Yeah, because yeah. it was the hourly too, right? It, it was different in different states that I worked. Oh, so don't go to number four yet. So we have number one was? Um, the... Uh, Number two was performance. Number one was the people. The people, mm-hmm. intelligent people. Yep. Th- always something to talk about. Yeah. Two is the performance aspect. Yes. Three was, oh, the money. Show yes. me the money. And then oh, four. Yep, what's four? Expanding the palate. Food appreciation. Food appreciation and Good. understanding how, how all of that works. You need to be a little more specific. Yeah. Because you're the only white woman that I know that smokes cigars and drinks like <laughs> bourbon and scotch yeah. and you really know what you're talking about. <laughs> like your palate is so beyond like if there's a line of dudes, I'd be like, guys, take your take your Budweiser beer bellies and get out of here. She's gonna smoke you right now. She's gonna smoke a cigar <laughs> and pull, you know, she's gonna pour some like high-end scotch and you're gonna know what it and that you won't be able to handle it. Yeah. So what were some of the things on the palette that you really appreciated? Hit me. Well, I guess to start with, like the great part about working in, in this restaurant in particular was that we had like weekly wine classes where we would go and try like six or seven different types of wine. And wait, 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 wait. yeah. Management would have you come in and be like, hey, you, you need to get drunk and drink, drink this wine. I wouldn't say you need to get drunk, but you need to know what you're selling, and I want you to sell this wine. And if you can't describe it and speak passionately about it, you know, I, we're going to equip you with the tools to do that. You need to try these wines. You know what? That's smart. How many servers would you say worked at a particular fl- uh, Fleming's? 20, 30? Depending on the location, like 15 to 25. Okay, so 15 to 25. And if you each, like, latched on to a kind of... Say that you're like the Merlot girl and somebody else is the Chardonnay. You get 15 different people each latching onto 15 different kinds of bottles of wine. Do you know how much money that is? Yeah. I mean, that's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, it, it, helped, it helped a lot as a, you know, you're a server, but you're a salesperson, especially in fine dining. Um, and when people start describing a Cabernet as being like a... Uh, earthy vanilla drenched cigar. You're like, I want to try a cigar. Okay, like, <laughs> oh. or if you're describing something that's like really creamy and buttery with a hint of butterscotch, you know, as as they're sipping like a really rich Chardonnay, you're like, oh, compared to this Chardonnay compared to this bowl of Chantilly whipped cream right here in front of me. Um, But on top of that, we learned a lot of like the science behind it. You know, if you add salt and acid to something, uh, any kind of meat, whether it's chicken, fish or, or beef, it can really change the flavor and the interaction between the protein and then the acid in the wine. So there's that layer to it as well. Um, But working in the restaurant, you end up going out with your restaurant friends to other restaurants and trying things and pairing things. And it's sort of a culture of, if you're gonna go out to a restaurant, 
you're going to go all out. You're going to get what you want. You're going to get the wine that you want, and you're going to talk about it. Whether you can afford it or not. Exactly. Right, because this exactly. is because you're going out. You're going out. What's the point of going out if you're just going to get... A baked potato. No. Nobody needs that. <laughs> so was that... So was Fleming's that... the? Uh, sorry, my, my brain is all over the place now. You, know, this is, you never know where this is going to go. So did the wine... Once a month that happened? Um, so it depended the on the location. Tasting. But like... I would say at, at minimum once a month. Did that lead you to cigars or were you already on cigars? Uh, it, I think it led me to them. What about bourbon and scotch? Uh, definitely led me to bourbon and scotch. So because of the descriptions of the wine, you were like, well, wait a minute. I actually want to disseminate these tastes on their own. It makes you want to try and taste everything. Yeah. But it's funny because I guess going back to like aspirational you know, lifestyle or like the idea of consuming something to show who you are, to show your identity. Like there's a lot of, you know, like fetishizing exotic restaurants um, as and using that as cultural capital, you know, in the world that we live in. Obviously restaurants are closed at the moment due to the pandemic, but there's a lot of cultural cachet that you have if you can walk into work the next day and say hey I took Cindy to Trattoria Euphoria and guess what we got and then all of a sudden everyone's drooling and listening at the same time because you have something really important to say um and I think I think in many respects that's why rosé has become really popular among white women this is an observation this is not you know I'm not using any factual or statistical data in telling you this right now, but I, it's observably true. Hashtag rosé all day. It photographs well. It's pink. It's feminine. It's drinkable. It's fruity. It's classy. There's all these layers of shareability and, like, I... I, I Exclusivity. Ex- well... Or no... Inclusivity. Oh, inclusivity. Got it, got you it, can't it. go wrong with a glass of rosé. It's not white or red. It's oh, rosé, and it's just fun to say. And it rhymes. I do have a song about it. <laughs> not on the album, but exists. When's that song coming out? Um, Valentine's Day next year, twenty twenty two. Valentine's Day on February thirteenth. What's Valentine's Day? It's if you want to celebrate with your girls that you love and Valentine's Day is happening, which is, has all of these like Hallmark card and heteronormative associations with it. If you just want to like love and cuddle with your ladies, Valentine's Day is it. And the official drink of Valentine's Day is rosé. It's rosé. <laughs> and if it wasn't before, it is now because you just made it so. <laughs> so your... Okay, so let's go to Fleming. So did your so you just said you worked in three different Flemings. Yeah. So did you with the was the city hopping you alluded to earlier connected to the Flemings hopping? Did Flemings move with you from city to city? Yes. Oh, um, for the uh, most part. Yeah. Okay. So that was there was a correlation there. There was, and it was wonderful to actually that's kind of a fifth amazing part of the job is the ability to say I'm going to move and I have an opportunity to work in another 
you know, location, regional location of this chain. So that was great. Do you think that though that experience being working in a restaurant and being a part of that kind of community helps you understand uh, how do I say this? Did it expand your musical palette? You know, you, you talk about like there's like there's like a sensuality to you, okay? Mm-hmm. So the sensuality you're talking about would be I, I respond to like aromas, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're very, you, you respond to smell, you mm-hmm. respond to taste. You're very, so when we take sensuality, we don't necessarily talk about sex. What we're talking about is like, for me, I'm more, like, the smell of coffee, I'm just like, oh my God, this is like amazing, man, right? Uh, cha cha cha. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Touch, like, like when, when, like when, when with, with a woman, right? Like I'm like, oh my god, there's like the soft skin of a woman, and I get that. Like I think for anybody, that's, but that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be touch. Sensuality can be aroma, taste, visual, mm-hmm. right? So you're a very sensual person because you deal in the the visual with being a photographer. You deal in auditory because you're singing, sound, taste. You've talked about so there's a there's a truthism mm-hmm. in Trattoria Euphoria where you're you're being Kelsey, but even though she's putting on a show, there's an appreciation of what's behind the show. Yes, because you're experience. You're not just reciting words. You might be saying them in a way that's kind of like. Oh, blah, blah, blah. But in reality, you're like, but I actually can speak intelligently about cigars and scotch and mm-hmm. bourbon, and I can talk about all these different kinds of asses and bases and why this happens. So did that, at that point when you were working those restaurants, was your weather vane pointing, was the wind pointing in the direction of being a musical artist, of putting this together? What was the direction you were going from? How did you get from point A to point B. How did you get from, I'm, I went to school, I got these degrees, I'm doing this stuff, now I'm in a restaurant, and I'm in a city hop, was the whole design to become a musical artist. And when I say artist, I don't mean just musical, I mean like an artist, because I get that now. You're not a musical artist. You're a performance artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that a better way to put that? Uh, I'm an You're artist pl- who creates... Sonic and visual experiences. Uh, I make music, write music, perform to that music. I create performance art. I create visual art. I create immersive installations. Um, yeah, I, I, <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> um, but I, oh, there's so many layers to this one too. Um, can we do a favor? Can we do, do me a favor? Yeah. I want to pause. Yeah. I think we should have a beer. Great. I think we should chill for a second. I'm going to pause. Okay. We're going to come back. And I want you to really think about this because I think this is yep. important because I think this is going to be, I think as artists talk about who they are and you had said to me a few weeks ago, somebody else regurgitated back to you after hearing preliminary tracks from this new album of yours, Push Button Future. Mm-hmm. This is what they're getting out of it. And you were like, oh, that's what I meant, but not necessarily consciously. Right. 
Yep. They just gave you the the they put it in a way that wasn't your art. <laughs> they they put it in like English. You put it in artistic English. And so then you're like, oh, that's exactly what I meant without me saying that. So I really want you to think about what we just said. And then let's come back to it. Yep. That sounds great. Okay. Let's go. Joe's this way. Eat it nays. Where were, was it ten years ago? Eight years ago? Seven? Was it on this course, 
Or is this something that emerged in the last few years? Or did you have a different plan for yourself? Was it always to become this character of Nay? Or at somewhere along the line in the last decade, you were like, wait a minute, I can take all of these artistic skills that I have and intellectual thoughts, and I would argue you're also an empath in the fact that you feel other people's pain. So when you see something, it actually affects you in a Mm -hmm. profound way. To take all of that and bundle it up into a package as nay, when did that happen? Or, or, or was it a plan? I was gonna say, let me just restate that. Was it a plan or did it just happen? Right. I'm going to give you the short version of the long version. That sounds like an A answer. <laughs> Go for it. Short version of the long version. So I think something important to understand is that me growing up, at home, I had very loving parents um, and a lot of Christian music, a lot of like, you know, um, four guys who were in a quartet singing together sort of thing, uh, hymns, a lot of hymns, a lot of church music. And was Jesus the reason for the season? Well, yeah. Okay, I'm just making sure. I just want to yeah. clear, I want to send a picture. <laughs> I want to send a picture. Okay. Yeah. And it what it wasn't until i was you know in the in the 5th grade in a new girlfriend's car uh, sister's car cuz sister could drive and uh, a new friend and she was playing music on the radio and it was some Cheryl Crow it was some Britney Spears it was some uh I'm blue, abadi, abadai. And I was like, this is great. What is this? How can I listen to this again? This is so good. Bewitched, wait, Backstreet Boys, what? And so I started hearing these things and like pop music in this presentation of like the persona, the identity, the face on the album cover of someone who, who, was doing this and singing about these sort of, you know, questions of relationship, whatever. It was dancey. It was fun. I wanted it and I wanted to own it. And I uh, had gotten, uh, I think my parents gave me a boom box one year for Christmas. And with that, there was like a, a compilation of various Christian songs on it, which was nice. And then one CD that was like George Winston piano music playing the the peanuts but the fact of the matter is i had obtained a boom box and so i took all these with none of the music you wanted <laughs> okay just be honest you keep clever like oh it was so nice i got this christian music and george winston <laughs> playing the peanuts but where's Britney Spears? <laughs> where's right? anything yes yeah, yeah. go ahead go ahead and and so i I begged Santa the next Christmas to to deliver. Save me from this <laughs> musical hell. <laughs> I wasn't working. I didn't have money, you know, like maybe some babysitting money. Um, but it was one of those things where Christmas is coming up. I really, really want this. And so Santa gave me 
the new, the first ever Baby One More Time Britney Spears album. I got uh, the second Bewitched album, uh, another like pop all female group that was popular at the time. The what was their big hit? Oh, Come man. on, reach for it. It wasn't on the CD that I was given, and that upset me. Oh, you got like the you got the second album. Yes, <laughs> you're right. Sorry, Santa messed up a little bit. Um, so we, we got to find out what that song is. I, no, I'm gonna play it in the podcast, yeah. like right here. Hold on. Okay. Okay, there it is. There it is. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, they gave me the the um, Millennium Backstreet Boys album, and then the first NSYNC album. Like oh, with um, you are my fire, all that good stuff. I like NSYNC. I like in, if you had to choose between NSYNC and Backstreet Boys to go to one of their con- who would you pick? I would say, as a group, Backstreet Boys. Real over NSYNC. Yes, as an artist, Justin Timberlake. Uh, but yeah, but you're singling out. Right, but still, Backstreet Boys. That Millennium album is so good, and it just hit. It just it was more dancing. So you're choosing Backstreet's Back All Right over Baby Bye Bye Bye. Guess what? Backstreet's Back All Right was on the first Backstreet Boy album. Millennium was the second Backstreet Boy album. Well, okay. Very good. A oh. little more dancey. Give, give me the give me give me some songs to remember from that. Okay, I, I had an entire choreographed dance sequence. To the entire album? To Larger Than Life. Oh, I do like that song. By Backstreet Boys. Yes, that's a great song. Yes, I'm with you on this. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so you're saying... Keeps say- me alive. <laughs> All you people, can't you see, can't you see how your love affect me a reality? Every time we're down, you can make it right, and that makes you larger than life. They just would pronounce all the words, and like, they always it's not have life. It's life. Backstreet you know? Boys always have a <laughs> massive like downbeat on all their choruses. Yeah. Like, whew. do you know what I'm saying? Like, yes. life. Backstreets back. All right. It hits larger than life. Right. Cool. So I think the important thing to understand is receiving all of this music, listening to these out these these CDs on my new boombox, later my Walkman, playing them on repeat in my like personal library. Like this is not a unique experience. Everyone goes through that in one way or another, whether it's with the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, whatever that is. For me, it was pop music having never heard synthesizers being used in this way, never hearing those like massive drop beats. It was like you never, even if pop music is playing at the grocery store or the hairstylist, it's always kind of muffled and too much high end and it sounds like crap. But getting that, like putting putting it on that boom box and in those headphones, it just immerses you in the energy and the emotion of the song. So I discovered that and was like, this is so, 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 so awesome. And it was, in a way, a, a rebellion against, you know, like all of the sort of Christian and the classical music I was playing on piano as I was studying that as a, a young person. And, you know, like later on, as I expanded my pop music palette in high school, like it it was just awesome. And 
coming from the place of having no idea how it was made was also awesome and fine. You know what's interesting? When parents think they're protecting you from something, so they're going to do like the... And I think we're all guilty of it in some way, shape, or form where your parents are like, well, you're going to listen to this kind of music because we don't want you to hear that kind of lyrical content. Mm-hmm. Or we want it to be about God or Jesus. And we want you to see these kind of movies. Or you can't watch this show. You can watch this show because this is the right message. But then when you... But what happens is it's so like, I'm going to go with it, white bread... That when you do hear something with like the big downbeat and the good production, you're like, it's almost like you were in the <laughs> desert for so long. Someone gave, in a weird way, it backfires because when you do hear it, you're like, oh my God, yeah. I've been waiting for this. Shoot, I can dance to this. Yes. Right? Exactly. You know? And so, in a weird way, it, it backfires when people do that because it's almost like when you don't let your kids ever have soda. Then they go to a friend's house and they like they the, the mom's like or dad's like hey you, you want some soda like well I'm not supposed to but it's like crack right. kids like oh my god this is a Dr Pepper <laughs> this is the this is way better than water yeah. or apple juice I'm never going back to apple juice right well like classic example like one CD I received from my parents maybe in the following Christmas was the the soundtrack to the Olivia Newton-John, John Travolta, Grease, right? Oh, and yeah. And obviously loved that soundtrack, learned it all, memorized the lyrics, choreographed, choreographed my own, like, funny dance moves to certain songs and taught them to my little brother and taught them to my best friend and made them dance with me and stuff. And... I'm walking around singing like, look at me, I'm Sandra Dee, in virginity. And my parents are like, Janae, you can't sing that. I'm like, wait, what? And it was like this traumatic moment. Like, wait, what did I say? Like, I, I think I was even slurring the words because I didn't know like what they were. Because it was because you were you don't <laughs> needed to know what the words were. They were responding to the context of it. Yes. You were responding to the melody of it. Right. You, you didn't have the context or the life experience yet. I was in like the sixth grade, I it think. It didn't matter. Yeah. I, it's funny. I had a, a similar experience. And I, I like the Grateful Dead. I don't love them. This is probably like fifth grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. I had my Walkman. But you had a CD Walkman because I'm way older than you. I had the that tape. I had the And yours <laughs> clipped on the side of your pants. Sure did. I had we had to wear shoulders like like a purse. <laughs> it was like a purse. It was like a bag that held the giant Walkman that the tape went in. And I remember I had a, a, a mixtape and I was singing "Driving That Train High on Cocaine." Casey Jones, you better watch your speed. And my, and I would sing that like walking to school. My walk. My mom would say to me, ironically, Santa gave me the Walkman with the tape. What did you think was going to happen? Right. They're dr- they're, they all do drugs. <laughs> like, it's the Grateful Dead. It's yeah. like all over the tape. She's like, well, you shouldn't sing that loud. Well, do you know what you know what you're singing about? I'm like, I don't know. But I remember giving me like a scolding on it. And then Heinz, I'm like, it, she didn't need to say anything. Like, right. you don't need to say anything to your kids. Like, they're not knowing what they're singing. So Jeffrey Lewis I interviewed is one of my first interviews. And I have all his albums now. 
and I play them. I have them on CD. And he hand, he's an artist, and he hand designs all his mm-hmm. album covers. And he has a song. One was, the last time I tried acid, I went insane. So that's on an album. I have a second album that says, we don't want no LSD tonight. That's on his second album. First album, what happened was when that, that album came out, people were like, oh, he likes LSD. So people started coming to his shows and like, hey, man, you want to drop some, some acid? And he's like, no, I went insane. I don't want to do that. So so many people were doing it. He wrote a song about it for his second album, We Don't Want No LSD Tonight. Yeah. And he talks about these guys that come backstage like, Dressed like a daffodil. <laughs> hey, man, you want to do some acid? Like, you're Jeffrey Lewis. You're the acid guy. He's like, no, I don't do acid. So my kids are in the car singing, we don't want no LSD tonight. They know all the lyrics. <laughs> don't you panic? Don't you panic? Give it one more try. But at first, my, as a parent, I'm like, do I need to inter- intervene here? Like, nah. Right. But but I know that one of my kids is going to be at school and be like, I don't need no LSD tonight. <laughs> and some parents are going to have some, like, like complete reaction to it. And I think that that's something that, that's really detrimental. Mm-hmm. Don't you think mm-hmm. that, that, like, they're shutting down Sandra D? I felt so embarrassed for, like, weeks. Like, obviously, I still remember that incident because I felt so... Like, it makes me feel embarrassed just bringing that memory, like, back up to the surface. Did she explain virginity to you at that point in sixth grade? Like, like, like what happened at that moment? Um, I think I knew what it was, but I didn't make the connection of, like, what I was singing or slurring with the lyrics. It was just such a catchy melody, you know? But, you know, with any kind of pop music, there's always something subversive or sexual or sensual about the presentation of it and and the reactions to it. So one thing I've been trying to do, um, and this is an ongoing project, it's not complete at this point, is sort of tracing my musical journey. And so after I had a conversation with my very good friend Jordan, who was a person who you were referring to, and we had a lot of really great sort of academic, like putting what nay is into the academic art context, one thing... Uh, that was very wise of him to encourage me to Stop. do. Don't say it. You didn't finish the story. Let's get back to Jordan. I want you to stop. Okay. We we got nope. Hold the thought. You got to go. We got to go back years. We're still trying to get to how you got to this point to Jordan. We're not. We're not crossing Jordan yet. Okay. Got <laughs> it. Biblical got reference. It. We're not. Oh, Jordan. I'm just saying he. We're not going there, but I'm. I, I don't. Want, I, I don't want you. I don't want you to say what he's going to say because I'm. In, I'm guessing, but I. I've got your mom now. Mm-hmm. I've got something going on in the family. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure where you became a musical artist. Got I'm trying. I get what I'm saying. Jordan's got you already as an artist, as a career person. He didn't know you as a younger person, and he's got some feedback. Right. right? He had uh, just encouraged me to to think more critically about my background in music. Okay, but I want to still get to this point. Yes. So I want you to finish that. Got it. Okay, so we we got your Backstreet Boys 
introduction to pop music because you got the mm-hmm. boombox. Your your mom is playing Christian music, and then but they make the mistake of giving you the Grease soundtrack, and then you're singing about virginity, and they're freaking out now, thinking you're you're gonna become a slut. <laughs> That's pretty much what that is, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Honey, she's gonna start having sex now. I told you not to get her the Grease soundtrack, and if you saw Grease. Definitely don't see Grease 2 then because it's even more sexually yes. subversive, yeah. <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, my my first serious boyfriend in uh, in high school um, was a huge influence on my musical taste as well at the time. So I'm, you know, with my friends, my girlfriends listening to all of this pop music and fast forward to like being 16 and being asked out on my first date of my whole life ever, like real date, like we're going to go somewhere. And it was to go see a Christian rock band play a live show. And which rock band? Reliant K. Oh, I know Reliant K. Yeah. I saw him when I was 16. First show ever. And they're a decent band. They're good. Yeah. And another another good Christian band that I liked was Jars of Clay. Yeah, they're also very good. Listened to some of their stuff, but was never like, you know, buying the CDs. I actually have a CD by them. Nice. I, I actually actually like Jars of Clay. I nice. think Flood, the producer, produced. Uh, oh yeah, right. That's a good one. Yep. You know what I'm talking about? Good, yeah, I know exactly. It's a kind of green album cover with dark. Like blues and blacks yes, in it. Yes. Yeah. And the letters are spaced out in white. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know right. that album. All right. Keep going. So you saw Reliant K. So I saw Reliant K. And of course, my parents are like, oh, are there going to be mosh pits? Are you going to be okay? You know, all of this. But like, I went. It was awesome. It was a phenomenal experience. Of course, what do you do after a show in Kansas City? After a show, you go to um, IHOP or Winstead's and you go get, you know, <laughs> You get some fries. <laughs> oh, so when I don't, I'm not for Winstead's. Is Winstead's, a, yeah, it's a Kansas City burger joint. Okay, with the big neon uh, pillar in front of it. It's it's quite it it's quite classic. The, the equivalent sounds it's like f- sounds like Friendlies in New York or in Long Island. Long yeah. Island. We should we should do a, a picture comparison after this. I, <laughs> How friendly Friendly's is to was it? But go ahead. So, but at that point, my music taste went more, um, I guess, towards the mainstream emo stuff that was coming out at the time, which is in its own right pop music with guitar, right? Like Good Charlotte, Death Cab for Cutie, um, Dashboard Confessional, Dashboard Confessional, yeah. absolutely. So I was listening to a lot of this sort of emo pop stuff, and that continued. Really up until um, probably like being a a junior or no, sorry, a freshman or a sophomore in college. And at that point, musically, of course, I was still, you know, listening to pop music. But then being in the art studio, working on paintings with other people all around me, like putting on Pandora, listening to Vampire Weekend, Listening to, I love Vampire Weekend. By the right? way, so I did not. Good. Did you think that their sound matched their name? No, no. That's th- a really good point. I'll <laughs> no, be honest. I avoided them because I was. I, I actually. Th- <laughs> this sounds really bad. What's the uh, the uh, the vampire movies? I had like this imagery that it was like this emo, like, I, I don't I don't know what I thought it was. Oh, the three vampire movies. Uh, shoot. 
They're like tween movies. Come on. Oh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer? No, that's a classic. Sorry. No, that no, it's definitely not uh, Buffy. The Twilight. Twilight. I thought it was like I felt like it was like listen, like tween Twilight group. Oh, it's no. reggae. Yeah. It's it's completely it's amazing. There's it's space. It's great. Oh, it's like reggae pop. But yeah. so their last three the three out, I mean, they're amazing. Back, I mean, like boom, 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 done. Mm-hmm. Great phenomenal band, Vampire Weekend. Check them out. So so yeah, my you know, but hold on. So you're yeah. you're basically switched from pop music. You got into the pop music, but then your your boyfriend at sixteen for the next three years, you're you're basically an emo. You're in this kind of well, Good Charlotte is kind of like a punk band though. So you're kind of like punk yeah. e- emo power pop P- power pop yeah power pop punk yeah power Green pop. Day like offshoots of Green Day kind of yeah slicker version. Mm-hmm. Because Good Charlotte, I mean, Green Day at that point, I mean, you had Dookie and Nimrod, but, you know, you're, so you're switching, but lyrical content is different in emo versus pop music. It is. It's, it's a different side of it. Yeah. Did you, so did you pay attention to the music more or the lyrics more? So in pop music, it sounded like you paid attention more to the music Mm -hmm. and the melody. I'm guessing or I'm inferring right now, and I could be, and if I'm making this up and putting words in your mouth, tell me that in emo, you're paying more attention to the lyrics. I would still say it's it's about the music. I, okay. I would say I wasn't really like you know listening to the whiny stuff as much. Like I I couldn't relate in it because a lot of the emo bands I was listening to were like a bunch of white dudes playing instruments. I couldn't really relate because they were talking about breakups with girls and stuff like that. Like they were singable and memorable lyrics in the sense that you could like recite a chorus. But I always liked the songs that were like funny or a little silly. Like Reliant K actually has one that's like Pink uh, Pink Tux to the Prom. Forget, it ha- it's, that's not the name of the song, but it's like, I am going to wear a Pink Tux to the Prom and, you know, nothing could go wrong. They have a whole song about mood rings. Like, that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. Come on. Like, that's okay. That's like not just whining about your relationship status. And I've always appreciated that. No, and if they're a Christian band, that's not a Christian necessary topic. Valid point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're, they're, they're like, listen, we, we, we're saying that we believe in God and, and we, we support Jesus, but we're going to sing about other things also. Yeah. Right. Because we're, Normal dudes. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. That, but like. Yeah. So. Um, so, yeah. Your, so, so your journey has gone from pop music mm-hmm. to emo mm-hmm. slash accepting some Christian bands because your boyfriend when you were at 16, now you're in college mm-hmm. and you're still kind of going the. Listening to whatever the art kids are listening to. And you started painting at that point. Uh, I was painting in high school as well, but I was, I had decided to at least minor in art, if not major at that time. And I was very motivated to put in the time and the effort to make the paintings very good and to make the drawings very good that I was working on. Now I know this, so I'm just going to say it. So, but through high school, you had also played flute. Yes. So it's not like at a left field, music became into your purview. You had always been, you've done... Piano since I was in second grade, flute since I was in ninth grade. My mom is a flute and piano player um, and very 
very, very good and plays in the church orchestra and, and all of that, which is wonderful to have, you know, parents who are encouraging of that. So my, but, but both mu- my grandmothers play piano and organ as well. But did you look at music at that point as, so when, when did you start piano? Second grade. As your own, on your own volition or was it kind of like, hey, you should play an instrument? It was... Were you interested in it? Yeah. I mean, I was like, oh, yeah, I should learn this. Right, right. I should learn how to play piano. And I, I enjoyed, like, piano lessons. And I had a very, very good teacher, Chris Vitt. She was awesome because I played a lot of the classical stuff, but she would always let me pick. If she played, like, three different pieces, she would say, hey, Janae, which of these do you want to learn? And then I could pick the one that I liked the best. So I, I never had like bad feelings of like learning classical music or learning instruments. And in many of the contexts when I played them, it was there was always kind of a sense of community around it, especially with being in band and all of that. What about flute? What made you take flute up, your mom? Yeah, and all my friends were joining marching band <laughs> and I'd been in choir all through middle school and did, and I'd been doing like singing in the musicals, but I knew that in high school, I, I didn't want to lose my friends. So I decided to learn flute and be in marching band and get to be in the same group as my friends. So it's more pack mentality. A little bit. Yeah. But also like, um, like my, one of my friends had a great flute teacher who I could take lessons from. My mom played flute so she could help me and had a flute laying around that I could learn how to play. And uh, so that was good. In learning these instruments, I'm I'm trying to like, I'm trying to read you. Did you learn them like as a functional thing? Like, well, I guess I should learn it, so I'll learn it. Or was it like, oh, I love doing this. Like, do I love, I love playing piano. Oh, I love playing flute. Then in hindsight, as an older woman now, you're like, thank God I did that because now I have more tools in my, yeah. Are, do you hear know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I love writing. I love words. I actually have no wherewithal to play an instrument. I don't really care, to be honest with you. And and to my few fans of Feds of the Gallows, if I have any, I don't really care how I, I care a little bit how I sing, but my goal isn't to be a singer. Like, I, I don't really. It's whatever. Yeah. If, if I can deliver it, I'll, I'd rather somebody else can sing it better. I don't mm-hmm. have that. But I really want to write something that's really, really good. Like really like, wow, that's Bob Dylan quality. That's my goal. And I realized like looking back, I tried guitar. I tried m- many instruments, mm-hmm. trumpet. But they never brought me. I found it laborious. Did you find playing piano? Did you find playing flute laborious? But you're like, you know what? Because of my friends, because of my parents, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to learn it. And then you'll learn it, but then you're looking back and you're like, you know what? Now I have this skill set. Does it st- Does it bring you a different kind of feeling now that you can play it versus, or is it still kind of like functional? Does, does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a really good question. Um there's a couple of factors on this one. It's like the instruments have always been enjoyable to play. I've never found them laborious, but I've always prioritized the ability to create. And I was not taught how to create using instruments. That's not something I was taught 
taking piano lessons or taking flute lessons. It wasn't, okay, well now you write a flute etude or, you know, you compose a flute ballad, you know, or you write a piano song. I, I did do some of that. And my piano instructor and my parents were always really encur- encouraging of that. Uh, but, you, you know, you can't show up to contest and perform that. I think at my core, I'm a creator person. I want to make things. And if the instruments can become or transform themselves into tools to where I can create something that's meaningful to myself and others, then that is another type of paintbrush that I can use in, in the language of, of the visual art, of the sonic art, of the, you know, of the experience that I'm trying to create. And so I've, I've become more and more fond of the fact that I have these skills having had the, you know, the recitals and the practice and everything with these instruments, I've become more and more glad that that experience exists. And also I realize more and more every day how much I don't know and how much there is to learn about different chord structures or how to play a solo on the synthesizer. And my creative partner, Ryan Black, has been incredibly helpful in sort of helping me push those boundaries to getting those instruments to be different tools than I even thought that they were or they could be when you start to apply them to creating something. But you wouldn't describe yourself as a musician. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I think I wouldn't say you're, and I know this sounds completely asinine. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that you're a musician. I would say that you're an artist that can play instruments, mm-hmm. even though you are a musician. I, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, it's it's yeah. kind of a weird because I think when I say musician, I feel like someone's like I'm dedicated to this instrument or music. Right. So like Ryan Blizzle slash Ryan from Black's Backbone plays multiple instruments quite proficiently. Yes, he's a musician's musician. He can talk theory. He can talk blah, blah, blah. Everything's about music. So that's in this core. I love music. I respond to it physically, emotionally, on, on a... Uh, I can't even tell. Like, I just, I, when I hear music, my life is better. Mm-hmm. But I don't make music. I'm musical. I hear melody. But I'm a lyricist first. So I would never say I'm a singer. I would never say that I am a musician. I'd yeah. say I perform these lyrics in a way yeah. that it's almost it's like right? watching you perform. It's like it's it's like impassioned spoken word. Oh, I like that. Yes. Yes. And it, it's compelling. It's it's a performance, but it's not like, you know, there's the thing with learning instruments is that it's always a contest. It's how well can you play this thing? How well can you sing this thing? How much have you warmed up? And it becomes, you know, it can become a task just like, you know, like good form and doing yoga. Like how good can I do this thing? And I, that's a thing that, that has bothered me about, that did bother me in, in learning music. It was like, well, I'm never going to be like the number one person in this contest. It's just not going to happen. I'm going to try my best. I'm going to get high anxiety. My anxiety is going to make me mess up. And 
you know, no matter how much I put myself in positions and play it in front of other people that give me anxiety, the anxiety is always there and it's not, you know, something that I can get over. The thing about using instruments as like a creative vehicle or as a, you know, a way to say something or as a way to accompany the words is, is very, uh, I guess, different to me. And so in that sense, I think when people say, oh, you're a musician, it implies like you have this really high skill level or this really high aptitude for this thing. I think you can be proficient in an instrument and say a lot. I think you can play a lot. I think it's enjoyable to do that without the pressure of, you know, playing this immaculate, you know, Oscar Peterson style piano jazz interpretation that, you know, is, is mind blowing. You can say a lot with a little. And I do think that that mindset in part comes from my background in visual art. Like, do you need all this information or can you say what the core of that message is with less? Would you say based on your multiple mediums that you work in, so if you wouldn't say you're a musician, would you say that you're a photographer? Would you say that you're a videographer? Would you say that you're a director? Would you say that you're a lyricist? Would you say that you're a singer? Like, do you get what I'm saying? I would say that I'm an artist. So the artist word encompasses... I. Go, yes. I do music. I do photography. I do performance. And... Ultimately, all of those things that I do are in service of making art. And art is a difficult word to use on a podcast or in general because it is so expansive. Like, oh, anything's art. Oh, that's so nice. You make art. Great. You're an artist. Um, I make art that is inquiry. I make art that is asking something that's asking a listener, asking a viewer to think about something differently. But why are you asking it? Because I have the questions myself and I want to open up that conversation through the art. Through the work. But they can't talk back to you though. Where's the answer? Where's the answer for that you're asking for? Do you you want an answer? Or do you want just the questions? I don't think that there is an answer because I I don't think that there's an objective truth to any of these inquiries, but I think that the fun and the meaningful part of it is asking the questions in the first place and thinking about how multiple meanings can be generated from a single object, a single performance, a single piece of music. Everyone can walk away with their own interpretation. But the thing is, there are spaces to talk about it and there is dialogue happening and there is a community of artists and musicians, people who want to talk about that work. And that community, those communities exist in, of course, galleries, museums, academic institutions, but they also exist in relationships. The people you encounter in your life, people who aren't even artists, they happen on Instagram constantly. People are talking about things. Uh, You won't find it as much in the comments, under a post or an artwork, but you'll most certainly find it in the direct messages. These conversations are happening and they're fascinating. And because people have opinions about things, people want to talk about it. And 
like not to get too philosophical, but this all goes back to the, the, the fact that humans are like the only meaning-seeking creatures on Earth, except for maybe dolphins, who we know have language, and potentially pigs because of their high intelligence, and potentially dogs, maybe. But humans are the only creatures on Earth that have ever throughout history created art and created things. Why make it pretty? Why, why make it something other than just having function, right? So I feel like the joy in, in making music is the, the joy in, in making art. It, it's in service of that. So who are you asking these questions to? Whoever looks at the work. But in whatever they, context the work is presented. But are you also asking them to yourself? Absolutely. And then do you have answers for yourself? Or, or is it just this perpetual, well, I ask the question. The funny thing about it is the questions tend to lead to more questions. And you can read, you can do all of the reading ever on a given topic. And there's always more books. Because no one book has all the answers. No one human life has all the answers to anything. But I think if you make it in the first place, you can offer something to that conversation. And you can ask people to think of it differently. Do you think that your parents being... And I'm, I'm, this is going to sound wrong. But I don't mean it to sound that way. Being uber-religious. Religion gives you... Def- Definitive answers, black and white answers. Mm-hmm. Do this, this is the result. You do this, this is the result. But you want the you're the opposite of that, right? So so there's there's these thoughts that like when you come from a household where there is rigid thinking, whether it be we're a religious family, we believe in God, these are our values, this is what we do. Or you come from a family that's, hey, man, whatever floats your boat. The family that gives you the rigid values gives you two opportunities. Mm -hmm. One, to accept them, and two, to rebel against them. The kind of, hey, man, whatever floats your boat family is very wishy-washy, and you don't know where you stand. Mm -hmm. But in a weird way, because your family was very rigid, and I don't mean that in a bad way. You have to understand, I'm not, I'm not bagging on their beliefs. Yep. That's, yep. that's fine. If that works for them, that's great. It gave you, well, you have only two, you have two choices, to accept or to rebel. And you chose the palatable way of art slowly over time to develop yourself but the person that's really rebelling is not you. It's your alter ego of nay. Are you following me so far? Yeah, I'm with you. So you've taken all these aspects that Janae learned through flute, piano, photography, painting, drawing. And I've seen your drawings. They're amazing. And to go through all these mediums and to put it all into one character that's a big fucking middle finger that's like, <laughs> fuck that. That is not what I'm about. 
But it's Nay saying it. It's not Janae. Because if Janae said it, you might be fracturing your relationship with your family. I don't know. I'm getting, but I'm, 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 caught, I'm just putting things together as I'm hearing them of that Nay allows you to say things and do things that's it's like, listen, this is a character. This is a persona that I'm, it's a part of me, and I believe some of these things, but I'm posing questions. But it's also in a weird way that you're allowed to say things that you maybe you wouldn't say mm-hmm. in, in other contexts or, or in different company. Mm-hmm. Nay, nay can authentically say these things. For Janae, it would be a, 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 huge, a huge feat of emotion. And... Well, there could also be blowback. Yeah. There, there could be repercussions, right? Because you're very clear about who Nay is, right? And there's aspects of you as a person that I know is Janae that I know you, but then you baffle me. Again, like, hey, I have a lot of anxiety, but I buy really adventurous beers, I smoke cigars, and I drink bourbon and scotch, and I'm up for doing like almost anything but a roller coaster, and I have anxiety, but I'm going to go on stage. This doesn't make any sense. You'd think you'd be the wallflower in the back of the class who's, you know, you'd be like Ali Sheedy in Breakfast Club where you got your hood up, where you, no one can see you, and you're trying to hide, and you're like this the whole time. Mm-hmm. You're, you're actually the opposite. Like art has given you, and I'm saying the word art encompassing everything that you do, has given you a license to express yourself without the negative effects of your anxiety. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well said. Yeah, I think it, it absolutely is a, an avenue to do that and to make something that is outside of myself. Um, and the great thing about it is, too, and I, um, I tell my students this quite a bit, it's like if you make art, you can't ever get so attached to it. Like it can't be like your special little project that you're going to make it say and do this thing and that's what it's going to do and you're going to just go for it. It's like the art, once it's created, is going to have a myriad of interpretations and possible meanings and things that it could be. And so I love the process of making it and making it as well as I can and saying something through it, but also acknowledging that once it's outside of me, it's going to do its own thing. And I think it's awesome to be able to do that with a persona. I tell my students, it's like, I'm not, I'm not a parent, and most of you guys aren't either, but it's like if you have a kid, you can tell it to do this, this, and this, and this is how to behave, and this is what I want you to do. But ultimately, that kid is going to be its own thing to others and to itself. And I think that's, that's how art making is too. Now let's bring back Jordan. Okay. Let's go to Jordan. Yeah. I love Jordan. Yeah, he's great. I love Jordan. Jordan, Jordan, I'm giving you a a mic hug right now. (laughs) You're just a great guy. But go ahead. Let's talk about Jordan now and his interpretation of your child. Of my, oh, of Nay. Of Nay, which is your child. That's your art child. Right. It's not your love child. Oh, it could be your love child too, I guess. It's a great song, by the way. Yeah. Um, Well, Okay, before we go to Jordan, there's one aspect of your question I've not answered, which is why the pop 
Thing. Oh, oh yeah, right. T- totally. Thank you. Bring me back. Go. Yeah. Go. Let me let me clarify that. Um, now that we've done the long version of the long story. <laughs> It's way more interesting though. Yeah, you know what? I, I hate interviews where it's like it's, you yeah. want a sound bite. We yep. need it, we need to germinate. We need to That's let right. it marinate. Yep. Let's um I uh you know my sonic palette expanded to more like synth synth artists and you know, kind of quirky things like hot chip and new order in two thousand and nine when I was like having a great summer and a summer fling and flying to LA and Denver and like hanging out, whatever. But everything always comes back to pop music because it's about the melody. It's about the persona. It's about the identity. And in graduate school, I made a lot of work where I performed in these spaces, as I mentioned before, wearing ridiculous outfits and costumes and stripes and melding into that environment or making it feel even more uncanny or weird than it already was. Uh, And so the environments become these sort of stages or characters themselves in that sense. And um, (laughs) towards the the end of grad school, I found myself sketching all of these drawings because so many people had interpreted my my art as feeling like this, this feels like it could be in a music video. This feels like, you know, there's something else going on here, even though we know it's you performing and this is performance art. There's something really stylized about this. It feels, you know, like something you would see in a music video. This is Lady Gaga, whatever. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I started making all these sketches of myself in these ridiculous costumes and these outfits in these various spaces and kind of imagined what would it be like if I created a pop star persona. Didn't follow up on it for a couple of years. And um, when I did, I decided to write my first song, which was or first like pop song, which was written about new urbanist developments, um, cookie cutter houses, sort of getting stuck in, um, in a place because you appreciate how it looks and how it appears to others, the perception of living in that place. Uh, and that song was Symphony of Banality. And I got to collaborate with some really awesome musicians and folks to actually make that happen and give voice to it. And um, it happened at the time that my students were also interested in this project and they wanted to help put together um, a real live music video for it. And so I went back, filmed the music video with my students, namely um, Chris Turgovich, who's a phenomenal uh, creative artist, lighting guy, videographer, all of the things, uh, director. And uh, that's how the character was really born out of this photography music video production. And so. Chris, so I just want to give Chris a, a roll back there. Mm-hmm. He also uh, filmed with you. you. You wrote the script for Dacron Duvet, correct? Uh, yes, yeah. So, so Chris was also the, what would you call him, like the videographer on that? Videographer, lighting designer. Uh, I was I did the set design, but Chris was able to navigate all of like the lighting, the atmosphere, the haze, the placement of things. Um, so this, and he's one of he was one of your students who you're now working professionally with. Correct. And he's I think he's you mentioned to me earlier that he is slated to write and direct your next video. That's, correct. For, that's correct. For what what song? For sugar pumps. For sugar pumps. Yeah. Yep. All right, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I wanted so to just clarify I, I, that. Yeah, and and that's that's how Nay kind of came out of 
all of this. And it's really only been in the last year. This is, you know, first EP put out in 2015. It's really only been in the last year that I've circled back and forced myself to take a deeper dive into who Nay is, who this persona is. Why do I keep making all of these songs sung by presumably these caricatures that are, you know, people that I've met or versions of myself who are singing about these specific themes often related to shopping, consumption, um, latent addictions, uh, spiraling out of control, uh, the things you do when you're bored, looking at your phone too much. Um, so all of that being said, going back to your question then about Jordan is, uh, Jordan's a very, very wise, insightful friend of mine, uh, Jordan Schulman here in Chicago, and a photographer and a colleague of mine um, where we both teach at DePaul University. And we sat down and listened to the full Nay album, Push Button Future. Uh, I was taking notes. He was spouting off ideas. And um, we were having a conversation about what the major themes were in the music. And something that um, Jordan said that, that really stood out to me, because I, I knew the work was about like white privilege or, or white guilt or not, but not guilt because no, none of the characters are guilty. It's, you know, it's not that. And he was the one who said, well, have you thought about like systemic entitlement and what that means? And the next thing he said very importantly was, um, if you are entitled, you have both the privilege of having problems and in turn, you have the privilege of being forgiven. So it's cyclical and that's that can spiral out of control. It can happen over and over again and no one's held accountable. What, what, what does that mean? I'm, I'm trying to follow this. So you have the privilege of having problems, mm-hmm. but also the privilege of being, being for, forgiven. Wow. So can we can we go into that for a second? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it's a really complex statement, but, you know, you look at the, you can look statistically at the number of white people in jail versus the number of black people in jail. There's the money there to get those people out of jail, and there's also, like, less people brought into jail by, by police, by government officials in general, than uh, people who are not white, right? Or of color. Or of color, right? Uh, You can look at the uh, opioid crisis in America right now. Who is that affecting the most? White people. Who has access to opioids? White people. Why 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 is the sort of national eye turning towards, oh, you know, maybe maybe we should help these people. Maybe we should offer therapy. Maybe we should, you know, get help help people who are addicted to opioids, namely white people, out of their addictions. But we didn't help anybody with in the crack pandemic. Exactly. Because we it's, actually we, we incarcerated. We actually, we, actually, we, actually, we incarcerated those people. Well, we also put crack into the black neighborhoods <laughs> on purpose. That was done deliberately. Right. Right. But uh, who uh, it's not the white person who goes to jail as much. Statistically. So we are, if we are put on the hook, we're also able to get off the hook quicker. Yes. That's, that's what Jordan is saying. Yes. And, and you have, 
you know, the, the term first world problems, right? Like everyone has problems, everyone has stress uh, in one regard or another. Uh, for one person, that stress could be, uh, am I going to be able to pay my rent this month? For another person, that stress could be, am I going to get the bonus or am I going to get the promotion that allows me to make $250,000 next year? And that's the same amount of stress experienced on either side. But who's more privileged, right? The person who is, you know, going to get that that opportunity or that job. So I think, I've, and I'm still te- teasing this out. I don't have all the answers and I'm not the expert on this. And I'm trying to read and think about this and um, sort of see how this plays into future work that I create as Nay and as the caricatures of Nay. But I, I think it's really important to acknowledge what that, what, what privilege means and also acknowledge that many times people can get stuck in their own realities and not <laughs> reconsider it unless there, there is something traumatic that happens to them that, or th- that they witness that causes them to become more self-aware than they were before. You can spend your whole life watching football games, going to the bar, looking at your phone, having a beer with a buddy, and like have a family and a wife or whatever and go your whole life like that and just get stuck stuck in the same cycle or the same routine and never really think about anyone else never really think about a larger context than what you're doing and 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 how you're you know living this so the larger those are sort of like the larger questions again i'm still but but it sounds like though that you're not looking necessarily for is what you said earlier you're not looking for necessarily for answers by posing questions. You're asking for more questions. Yeah. And the fact that if yeah. a song that you write or a photograph that you take or a video that you make or a painting that you make or whatever it may be, the art that you choose to make at that time, if it gets you thinking about it outside of having the beer with your buddy, outside of going to the football, watching sports, or outside mm-hmm. of the tropisms of what, you know, whatever a male may be or, mm-hmm. or a female may be or mm-hmm. a... But here's another one too, ready? Let's just put it on, on white people. How about, what does it mean to be a black person? Oh, I'm going to... This is what black people look like. Well, that that's the same thing, isn't it? It's just just flipping it. It's Or this, this is what Hispanic people do or this is what Polish people do or... Right, and I... I'm right, not- right, here, here, here's one. Here's a tropism. All Polish people are, are are really good at construction. Th- that's not true, <laughs> right? Right, but, right. But that that's something that oh, they're very hard workers, right? Well, as if there's no lazy Polish people, or every Irish person's a drunk. Well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm having a few beers right now, but but these are things that like we we make these absolute statements, but. If you can think about them in a meaningful way, you might be more empathetic to somebody else. You might not, maybe that will quell this a racist tendency in your area 
or where you live or what's going on with you. If these things raise awareness and get you thinking about how you live and stop thinking only about yourself, maybe that's worthwhile art. Maybe that's that's you doing your job. Mm-hmm. I hope so. And isn't that what that's about? Yeah. Ultimately, is yeah. it is that, is that your job? Is that your jo- okay? Here we go. Let's end it on this. When Jordan kind of threw some ideas at you, and this was before Black Lives Matter. Let's be specific, because you I know I've known you for years now. Mm-hmm. You're you've been writing this album for years. It wasn't like oh, I've been inspired by the BLM. No, no, this was already going on with you. This isn't like, oh my God, this sparked something in me. This was already happening deep inside you. And I think what BLM did for you, again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, was like, this is what I'm talking about. This is what I've been thinking about. This has been boiling inside of me. Like I feel, you were already feeling guilty. Yeah. Uh, Or or at least aware of that, that this hypocrisy was going on. Yeah. So I think that's important to, note, to to annotate that, yes, this was going on before for you as an artist. It was already being processed. For years. For yeah. years. About about white people in the suburbs. Like that. that is every, caric- every, every caricature has that background. Am I wrong in saying, though, that, that you didn't want to become that character yourself, that caricature yourself, that you're actually thinking like, I don't want to be like this. So in, in saying that, you're you're trying to figure out how not to be like that? Yeah. I, I mean, my whole life, <laughs> in real life. So what is it about that that repels you? I've never wanted to become detached from culture. From whose culture? From... From the culture of of art, of music, community, and density that cities provide um, in in really wonderful ways, or dense communities. Even well, I live in one of the most diverse places in Chicago right now, and it's a suburb, which is fascinating. Um, in in Glenview, where you know the, the population is predominantly Korean, uh, which is very interesting to explore on its own, but I, I guess I've never wanted to become complacent or just fine enough or just stable enough. And part of that, I think, plays into my changing of environments, at least, you know, before moving to Chicago, where I am in the most sort of dense uh, large American city, which was always my goal since um, since college, probably thinking about taking art quite seriously. Uh, but I've never wanted to be a slave to routine, a slave to ritual, uh, or detached from culture, and uh, that's really important to me. I'm going to throw you out under the bus for a second. Okay. You just said, I don't want to become just stable enough. Mm-hmm. But we started the entire interview with, you don't like roller coasters. 
<laughs> which is the which is false stability. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, it's uh, very. So we again, we're back to right where we started. Yeah. That your 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 art is a way for you to wrestle with ideas and concepts that keep you unstable, but in your pursuit of a stable career, <laughs> you're, you're 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 trying to manage these other things. Yeah. Uh, sorry, what's the question? That's a really insightful comment. I'm I don't, kind of processing. I don't right think there's now. anything to say. I think that's just, yeah. I think that's who you are. Yeah. I think that's Nay. That's Nay. That's Janae. I think there's, there's this, there's this two sides of you that are, there's a guilt side, there's a questioning side, there's an accepting side. And then when you keep, we keep going with the sides. But then there's the flute side, there's the piano side, there's the writer side, there's the photography side, there's the, right? Again, we keep seeing the, the different sides. So if all these sides are, are working together and against and for and with, something's going to come out and you're trying to make sense of it. And then you're trying to make sense of it. Somebody gets the benefit of listening to it or hearing it or seeing it that maybe they, it will help them. I don't know. I, I honestly, truly hope so. That would be wonderful. I think that is a push button future, not to be funny, <laughs> but like, isn't yeah. that your album, right? Yeah. Like, it's like, we can make the future easy, but the irony of the title to the lyrics mm-hmm. is that you leave listening with more questions than answers. Yeah. So actually, the future is going to be more confusing than the present. It's the devil you know versus the devil you don't. Absolutely. And it sort of becomes up, up to you how much you'll let that future become automated and push button and stable and how much you as a, a human will challenge that or challenge those norms or challenge systemic issues that are going on. I, I, I think that's, I mean, to be clear, I think that that's really important. So you're basically rebelling through pop music against stability. Yes. I mean, yes. You, you ready? You're not a pop artist. I'm going to say it. You're a punk. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why you're on What the Punk. Cool. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sully. This is a pleasure to be interviewed, and uh, I'm going to be thinking about this one for a while. This is great. Thank you so much for thinking of me and um, having such wonderful questions and approach. Janae Kontag, the artist is Nay, her persona, her artist persona. The album is Push Button Future, soon to be released. February 12th. Everywhere. Business you can play, but lost without the light. Empathy for losers to go down the 
Live it up, do it up, everything in excess. But we ain't done yet. People look at me, look at the people. Money wins, got cash at the club. Palomino, love and fear, exotic, and they all getting glitzy. And mingles in the basement, they all feeling blitzy. Casino carpet, tiny dress, doing it with cocoa. Popping the Prosecco, they all going loco. And Terry and Denise, defining the design. Maserati on lease, and the Chrysler turn mine. Now they take it back. There are catches on the best, spinning, spinning, they're all there. Why we going home there? People look at me, and I look at the people. Hot the trash, burn the cash, Vegas casino. Too much is never, never enough. When is it ever? 